on uh, Sunday mornings, regularly, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, right? That is our, our regular, oh, yeah, the kids, sorry. <laughs> I'm so excited to get into this one, I forgot. If the, if the kids want to be dismissed for, uh, for children's church, y'all are welcome to head for that. And I'll let uh, Dennis and Paul finish picking up the, the tear-offs. Sometimes I just get so excited about preaching that I forget what's, what else is going on. <clears throat> so, so normally on Sunday mornings we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And we've been uh, studying our way through the book. Um, it has been fairly slow. Um, I, know, I know some preachers could go a lot slower and others who would go a whole lot faster. Uh, but that's okay. We've taken uh, about six months-ish to get halfway through. And it had been my, my goal originally to get truly halfway by the end of the year. Uh, that didn't quite work because I slowed down on a couple that uh, I felt like needed a little bit more time. But that's okay. Um, we are almost to chapter 8. And... Um, there's a great passage right in the middle of chapter 8, and that really is the theme of what today's sermon is going to be about. But we're going to take a pause on our regular study through the Gospel of Mark, and through January we're going to be looking at a few other things, doing some a little bit different uh, rather than straight through a full, big, long passage. We're going to take a few topics and just touch on those and look at those uh, each week in January. And we will be go back to the Gospel of Mark. But I, I thought it might be nice to have a little bit of break from Mark as well. So we'll do that for a couple of weeks. But as we come to chapter 8, there is a phrase or a question that comes up. And as I was, was thinking and preparing for this morning, it, it occurred to me, you know, that would make a really, really good theme for a Christmas Eve service, Christmas morning type uh, sermon question. So I'm going to ask you, who is Jesus? Now, I'm going to guess most of you are ready to answer that at a moment's notice. But I'm also going to guess that if you were out on the street and someone walked up to you and said, who is Jesus? It might take you a little bit by surprise. So, Think about it for a moment. How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? That question was actually posed to Jesus' disciples in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 29. Um, in it, as, as we've been studying through Mark, we've seen Jesus going out and about to various places, having lots of different interactions, lots of different things going on. Word about him had spread far and wide. Lots of people knew about him. But what did they know about him? Jesus was going out, and he was walking along with his disciples. This is Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Walking along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he was asking his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? It's a reasonable question. He's, he's stirred up a lot of controversy. He's stirred up a lot of excitement. There have been crowds following him all over the place. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, Some say John the Baptist. 
Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. Now, this same thing came up earlier in our study of Mark when uh, Herod was asked about Jesus. And there's, there's some interaction there. Well, this time Jesus just asks his disciples, and they give these three, three answers, three possibilities. But he continued questioning them. But who do you say that I am? And that really becomes the question that we're going to dig into this morning. See, we celebrate Christmas, and most of the time, everybody's okay with Christmas. Everybody's okay with the idea of uh, a baby in a manger, and, and wise men coming, and, and shepherds coming, and stars, and all of that stuff. That's, that's fine. That's well and good. But is that who Jesus is? Is that it? Or is there something more? And so the disciples, when asked this question, Peter, you got to love Peter. He's always there ready to, to jump in, ready to go. Sometimes he gets himself in trouble, and other times he hits it out of the park, just like right here. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. You are the Christ. Well, <clears throat> down through the ages, there has been a continual question, who is Jesus? And it's a, a very, very important question. I would, I would contest it's probably the most important question most people are willing to accept that he was a real historical person. That he actually existed and walked the earth roughly 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel. That he was a Jew. Uh, in fact, most people are willing to acknowledge that he was a, a good teacher and that he died. But, if that's the end of the story, then he is just a regular person. Just a guy that died. Just a person that was influential throughout all of, of Western civilization, who was the cause for a lot of artwork and cause for a lot of celebration and cause for a lot of things, but he was just a person, just a man. Is that who Jesus was? Well, the debate really begins with this discussion of who is, what is the full identity of Jesus? Is he just a teacher? Is he just a good man, or was he something more than that? See, the Bible tells us that Jesus was infinitely more than just a prophet, or just a teacher, or just a good man. In fact, C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, addresses this. And this was one of his philosophical holdups as he was trying to decide, do I, do I trust Christ as Savior, or do I just be academic and, and really smart and, and intelligent? And he was debating back and forth on this. And, and he addressed the question, he summarized it with the three L's. That Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Those are the options. Either the things that he says about himself, he lied about, or he was crazy. Or, maybe, if everything that he said was true, maybe he's the Lord, God himself. Well, we're going to dig into that this morning, and we're going to examine what did Jesus have to say about himself. 
Because it, it would be really easy for me to get up and, and tell you my opinion and what I think about who Jesus is. I think he's pretty awesome. I think he's pretty cool. I think he's my savior. I think that he has directed my life. But my opinion doesn't matter. We're going to start off by taking a look at the Gospel of John. And we're going to really probably move very, very quickly through a bunch of passages in which Jesus makes statements about himself. And these are his claims. And so it's not, it's not my opinion that matters on this. These are what he said about himself. But then we're not going to leave it there because obviously he could be a liar or he could be a lunatic. And so generally speaking, it's important to have corroborating I've been messing with that word all week. Corroborating. Witnesses who say the same thing. There we go. I thought I had the word right, but anyway. Uh, it's important to have other witnesses who saw what happened, were able to evaluate it, and can also give us testimony of what occurred. Now, obviously, I'm going to assume that most here already believe in Jesus. And so what we're looking at may just be a review for you. That's okay. Because I don't think that even if you are a follower of Christ, even if you trust him as your savior, I don't think that you should ever get tired of examining who he really is, who he truly is. And it's easy to get so distracted by other things and by tradition and, and forget about what he actually said about himself. For others, maybe you're on the fence and you've, you've looked at it and you're like, well, maybe he is a liar. Maybe he is a lunatic. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to dig in and consider what did he say about himself. Like I said, you don't have to trust me. I want you to trust the evidence. Now, I've not spent a lot of time in courtrooms, but my understanding is that a witness is a good thing. An eyewitness is a better thing. Multiple eyewitnesses is even better still. So we're going to dig into what he said about himself, and then we're going to take a look at some of those other witnesses and what they had to say. Like I said, this week is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do, but that's okay. We're going to, we're going to go through the Gospel of John and take a look at seven I am statements. And these, these seven statements are metaphorical. Who knows what a metaphor is? Liz pops her hands up. Who, who did? Did someone over here raise their hand? What's a metaphor? Okay, a comparison. Go ahead, Magnus. Okay. Kind of like a parable? Okay. Technically, according to the dictionary, a metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable. A thing regarded as representative or symbolic of something else, especially something abstract. So in these first seven statements, Jesus is making an abstract statement about himself to teach about who he is. So obviously Jesus doesn't think that he is literally a door or a plant or a loaf of bread. Instead, he's trying to teach us something about who he is and what he does. It, it would be like modern day if someone claimed to be a goat. 
You ever heard that in sports? Oh, man, Michael Jordan is the GOAT. Or maybe you think Le- LeBron James. I don't know. I'll let you decide that one. Or have you ever heard that expression? I'm getting a couple of blank stares. My daughter's like, what? No, that's okay. That's okay. The expression, obviously, we don't think that that person is a four-legged caprine animal that eats everything. You know, a goat? No, it's, it's an abbreviation. It means the greatest of all time. It's the greatest uh, basketball player or the greatest football player, the greatest, but we call him a goat. It's a metaphor. It's something that, that we use to be able to, to make an expression. Well, Jesus is going to do that kind of a statement through the Gospel of John in multiple times in multiple different ways. And we're going to start off in John chapter 6. And we're going to take a look at one of these statements that he says, I am the bread of life. Now, obviously, he doesn't think that he's a loaf of bread. But what is he talking about? What's going on here? John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He, believe, he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, obviously, you would have to, to dig in, get the context, understand what's going on. We're not going to take the time to do all of that for all of these passages. But in this one, he has just got done feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two small fishes. And so they have this idea going on about food and regular food, and they're used to that idea. And they're thinking in a physical realm, and he says, I am the bread of life. What, what could that possibly mean? What is he dealing with? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on with this metaphor. First and foremost, he is saying, I am the sustenance that matters. This is what you really need. You're, you're thinking about physical food, and yeah, that'll get you through a day or two, but I am the sustenance that actually is required for you to have life. And, and specifically, he says, uh, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He's talking about long-range, long-term, eternal-type things. Spiritually, he will satisfy and fulfill their needs for food and for drink. He also connects this because of the people that he's dealing with, he connects this idea to the Old Testament to help them understand a little bit about Moses and the way that when Moses was out in the wilderness leading the people, manna came down from heaven and supplied for the needs of the people as they were wandering around out in the wilderness. Um, God provided that manna for them to be able to eat, to be able to survive. Well, Jesus is saying, hey, I am the bread of life. I'm not just here for that physical side. I'm here for that spiritual need. I am here to provide for that need so that no one will hunger or thirst or be without the spiritual consideration. The next one that he has is in John chapter 8. Like I said, we're going we're gonna to try and go through these fairly quickly. So if you've got your Bibles, make sure you're ready to, to flip pages pretty quickly. Uh, in John chapter 8, it says in verse 12 that he is the light of the world. Verse 12, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now this is another one where context, matter, context matters. 
And we, we recognize right before this, Jesus has been dealing with a group of people who are spiritually blind. They think they have it all figured out. They think that they know what the Old Testament was about, what God expected. They were the religious leaders of the day. And he basically had told them, hey, you guys have no clue. And then in just a few more verses, we're going to find that Jesus actually heals a blind man, gives him sight. And as you go through uh, the Gospel of John, you're going to see this idea of light and darkness come up over and over and over again. It's a regular motif that he deals with. And this, this contrast between the light being what God expects and what God wants, and darkness being the way of the world and sin and separation from who God is, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the light of the world. He's, he's drawing this connection between what God wants and expects of people to understand, to be aware of, to see what is true and what is false, and darkness, spiritual blindness, inability to see or to understand. And Jesus is the one who gives that ability to understand. I think he's also drawing a connection with the Old Testament. How was it that the Israelites were led through the wilderness as they wandered about? During the day, there was a pillar of cloud. During night, there was the pillar of fire that gave light, that helped them to see the way that they were supposed to go. I think he's also making a claim that connects him with the, the creation account. When God said, let there be light, Jesus is the light of the world that gives sight, that gives understanding, that gives the ability to know and to see and to understand. The next one that he has is, I am the door. That comes in chapter 10. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 9, Jesus again is talking to them and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The next one that, that follows on is immediately after this, so I'm going to take these two together. In verses uh, 11 through 14, he says that I am the good shepherd. Uh, starting off in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So Jesus here is making these, these two claims about himself. He says, I am... The door, what, what would a door do with, with sheep? What kind of a, an impact would that be? Okay, keeps them safe, protects them. Okay, what else? Okay, controls the access to be able to get in or to get out, right? And so Jesus is making this claim about himself that he is the access. He is the protection for the sheep, for the people of God. He is the only access to God for people. That, that is going to come up again, um, but in this passage, he's contrasting access that others have claimed that, okay, if you keep the law, if you do these religious acts, if you follow these instructions, if you do all of these things that the, the Jewish leaders were trying to tell people that you had to do, that's how you gain access to God. 
And yet Jesus is saying, no, access is through me. I am the door. I am, we'll, we'll see in a moment, I am the way to God. The other one, this idea of a good shepherd, like I said, it connects. What does a shepherd do? Protects the sheep. What else does a shepherd do? It leads them, guides them, feeds them, takes care of them. Jesus is saying, hey, I am the protector of God's people. I'm the one who takes care of God's people. And so here he's, he's making these two claims um, that he is the one who has access to God and he is the one who protects God's people. Uh, much like Joshua in the Old Testament, Jesus is going to be the warrior who guards and protects and takes care of. And he even later in this passage says that he lays down his life for his sheep so that they have that protection. Jesus is making some pretty big and pretty bold statements about himself. If you haven't figured that out so far, he's making not just claims about, well, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a guy who, who helps out and takes care of some things and does a couple. No, he's making some major, big, bold claims. He's saying, I am the one who provides spiritual sustenance. I am the one who enables people to see and to understand and to know what is right and what is wrong. I am the one who is the, the blockade between whether or not someone is or isn't part of God's people. That's a, that's a major shift from the Jews had in their mind, well, you know, if you're born a Jew, then you have access to God. And Jesus is saying, no, you have to either go through me or you don't get in. And and Jesus is also making this claim, I'm, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who takes care of God's people. All of these, these other false teachers and false guides and all of that stuff, that, he's drawing a drastic comparison between who he's claiming to be and who everybody else is looking at. And so as, as we've gone through just maybe halfway through these I am statements, we ought to already be getting an idea of the drastic claims that Jesus is making about himself. Not just a simple, yeah, I'm, I'm just a, a teacher, I'm a good guy, I do some, some things really well. No, he's making some big, bold statements. Let's continue on. I think it gets even more so as we go further in the Gospel of John. In chapter 11, this is a, a, a famous section. One of his friends has died. Lazarus passed away, and he waited a few days before he went to where he knew that his friend had been sick, and he could have gotten there earlier. And in fact, one of Lazarus's sisters comes up and accuses him like, well, Jesus, if you would have been here, you could have saved him. You could have healed him, and he wouldn't have died. And so Jesus begins to interact with Martha and have this conversation. We get down to John 11 verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, the one who comes into the world. Right after this, Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. That's, that's the first time that we see that happen 
in the Gospel of John, and Jesus is making this huge, bold statement. He's not just saying, yeah, I can heal a few things, I can do a couple of things. He is actually saying, life and death is under my control. Now, there are some in the world who make the claim, well, Jesus never said, I'm God. And, and no, you can go through this and you can recognize those words, those specific words did not come out of his mouth. But who has control over life and death? Who has control over access to God? Who, has, who fits all of these things? We're, we're going to continue on and we're going to see some more of these. And like, I know, I know, we are rushing through these. Uh, it, it was one of those where I initially thought, okay, this would be, this would be great, this would be really easy, and then I started going, and I'm like, oh man, I big, bit off way more than I can chew, because we are going to have to fly through these. I know, our, our normal way is to slow down a whole lot more, but I want you to catch this overall idea of who does Jesus claim to be? Well, from this one in particular, we see that he's claiming far more than just a good man or a, a teacher or you know something of a normal level. He is claiming to be the resurrection and the life. He is claiming to have power over even death. And shortly after this, he's going to prove it by raising someone from the dead. And Martha's response, I think, is, is very significant in this one, in verse 27, where she says, Yes, Lord, I have believed you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. Again, we have this statement made that Jesus isn't just some normal person. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And she is bearing witness to that and saying, Yes, that's what I believe. That's who Jesus is. Let's continue on in John chapter 14. John 14 verse 6. This is uh, nearing the end of Jesus' life. And he is giving some final instructions and information to his disciples, to his followers. And uh, during that interaction, he says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, this is one of those very, very famous statements. And it's really easy to, to just jump right on it because, I mean, it's a great statement. Well, let's back up just a little bit, see what's going on. See, he's already told his disciples he's about to die. He's going to be gone. But then in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, they are being troubled. They are being worried because he's about to die. And yet, what is Jesus claiming? I'm not going to die. I'm not, I'm not going to be gone. I'm not going out of existence. There's so much more. I'm going to fulfill God's plan. I'm going to make a place for you. So that where I am, there you will be with me also. That's verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And that's the point at which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So where is Jesus going? Where is this way that he is? To heaven. Thank you. He's, he's talking about heaven. He's talking, like I said, about access to God himself. And Jesus is making this huge claim that he is the only access to God. Now, in, in the world today, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of religions. And each one makes claims about themselves, about how do you gain access to God, about what are the ways to get there, you know, what, what is necessary to align with, connect with, whatever, deity. Well, Jesus is making a very huge and exclusive statement. And I think, I think we need to drill down on that and recognize he's not saying, I am one of many accesses to God. No, he is saying, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That is a major, huge statement. We've got uh, another of these metaphorical ones that come up in verse or in chapter 15, ver, very first verse, still during that same interaction between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus says, "I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower." And he's going to continue talking about this idea of what vines are and how they grow and things of that nature. But in this one, Jesus is making the claim that he is the vital connection that gives life. And purpose. These seven metaphors that Jesus has used draw a connection between the spiritual needs of mankind and the only way to have those needs fulfilled. And Jesus is making the statement, I am the only one who is able to fulfill these spiritual needs that you have. The need for life, the need for food, the need for access, the need for direction, the need for light, the need for ability to see anything at all. Jesus is not just making simple statements about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a normal guy who's able to, to help guide along the path that everyone goes to get to the same end that everyone's going to arrive at. No, he's making some very definitive, very distinctive statements. I am the only access to God. I am the only way. I am the one who is able to give you food and to give you life, to give you sustenance, to give you purpose, to give you anything. He's, he's being very exclusive. Either you trust Jesus or you don't. Either you rely on him and his ways or you don't. He's not making it a, a simple, well, you know, maybe. There's no variability on that. And these are the, the seven metaphors that Jesus uses as I am statements to draw a connection between the spiritual needs of the people and who he's claiming to be. Now, earlier I mentioned the idea of the goat, the greatest of all time, right? The, the basketball player or the football player or something of that nature. Well, in all of these, Jesus is making a claim that he is the greatest of all time. But there's two more examples that come up that in, in the Gospel of John, that I think make that argument even more so, and make it even more abundantly clear that he's not just saying, I'm really, really good, or I'm kind of really important. He's actually saying, I am the greatest. To understand this, and I, I think to understand the way that, that his listeners caught what he was saying in each of these, as well as the 
the two more that we're going to look at, we have to understand something from the Old Testament. See, Jesus was dealing with Jews, right? He was dealing with the religious system of the Old Testament, where they understood Moses had led the people out of slavery in Egypt and had brought them to the promised land and had set up his rules and his guidelines, the Ten Commandments and the various other uh, instructions that God had given to Moses for how they were supposed to live and what they were supposed to do. And even the, the history of building the temple and how God himself came down and indwelt that temple and they were able to have access to God through that and all of this history and all of these things that they understood. Well, I think to understand a little bit for us, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, we have an account as Moses is getting ready to, to do this, to lead the people where God wants them to go, to go through the process of bringing them out of slavery and starting this nation of Israel, this, this religion of the Jews. We see God has called Moses. Moses, as you recall, was born in Egypt and was raised in the the palace, but then he made a decision. Was he going to be a Hebrew, a Jew, or was he going to be a dweller in the palace and following all of the, the Egyptian customs and, and have the nice, soft life, or was he going to be true to his people? And he made the choice, I'm going to defend the Hebrews. And he actually stepped in and defended one of them and killed one of the guards to do that. And so he got run out of town. Actually, he got ran out of the country. He spent uh, roughly 40 years out in, in the desert learning to be a shepherd, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And he's walking along and he sees something very strange. He sees a burning bush that isn't consumed. So he goes up to it. And through that, God calls him to be the leader of his people. And they have an interaction. They talk back and forth. We're not going to go through all of that. We're going to pick it up in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Moses has gotten the instructions of what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to go back and lead them out and all of that. And he, he asks a question, and it's, it's really kind of a reasonable question. Who should I say sent me? See, Moses, he realizes he doesn't have the authority to walk back in and say, all right, all these slaves, they're free. They get to go. They can go their own way. No. Who, whose authority am I working under? Who, who should I say sent me to bring this message? And this is a, a very famous, very significant portion of the Old Testament in which God gives him an answer. Um, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name from generation to generation. God takes this moniker, I am, as his designation. It's a, it's a statement of existence, of being, but it's also a statement of presence, that he is, he is with them. He is the one who has guided them. He is the one who is going to show them where to go. He takes this moniker, and 
he gives his name as Yahweh. And there, there is some linguistics stuff going on where the, the two words, the I am and that name are very similar and they sound alike and things of that nature. But he's letting it be known, I am eternally existent. I have always been, I will always be. I am is the one who's doing this. The authority, the power, the presence, all of that is who God is. My name is Yahweh. And so with that in mind, Moses then goes and does exactly what God had told him to do and leads the people out of slavery into the promised land. Well, you'll notice in these seven self-references that Jesus has just given, he used that exact same phrase, I am this, I am that, I am these things. Now, it's, it's really easy to, to kind of brush that off and be like, okay, you know, that's, that's well and good. It's just a, a way of speaking. Maybe the Jews would catch that. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they'd see that as, as significant, or maybe they wouldn't. You know, who knows? Well, I, I'm pretty sure that Jesus was letting it be known that that's who he was, that he's making that claim that I am God. But... Just to, to make sure that we don't miss it, let's go back to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we've, we've seen, as we went through, a bunch of very interesting, very significant statements and claims that Jesus made. But John chapter 8, verse 58 He's been having an interaction with the leaders of the Jews, and uh, they've, they've come to a little bit of a, an argument, a disagreement, whatever. And, and they're basically saying, well, you know, we're, we follow Abraham. He's our father. We want to do things his way. We understand his way. You're just some young kid, basically. They're, they're downplaying his ability to know any of these things. You're not even 50 years old, they said. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, for us, that's okay, just a, a general type statement of being in existence, I am. Except, Abraham goes even before Moses. This is the father of the Hebrews, of all of the Jews, and he, he was even before Israel became a thing. So he's, he's the patriarch. And here, Jesus just said that before Abraham was, I am. He's making a bold statement there of his pre-existence. He is clearly turning it up and declaring, I am God. I am the one who told Moses, I am the one that will lead you out of Israel. He's the one that said, I am God himself, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that Moses was like, hey, who, who sent me? Jesus is saying, that's me. And if there's any doubt as to, okay, is that really what he's saying? What's the very next thing that occurs? Go back to John chapter 8, verse 59. Therefore, or because of that, they picked up stones to throw at him. They were about to kill him because he made this statement. Why would they want to execute him? Why would they want to kill him? 
in their mindset, this is blasphemy. This is making a claim to be God. And so if you're making that kind of a claim, that's a big deal. And they knew it. They saw it. And so they were going to kill him because of it. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus left. He got out. Okay. We got one more I am. And then, like I said, we've got a, a few witnesses that we need to, to check on as well. The last one comes up in John chapter 18. So in, the, in chapter 8, they picked up the stones. They wanted to kill him right there on the spot. And he, it wasn't the right time. And so he, he left. He got away. Well, in chapter 18, it is the right time. And Jesus knows that he's about to be executed. He knows that, that there is a group coming to arrest him, to have a sham of a trial, to slap him up on a cross and kill him. And it's, it's about to happen. And this group shows up to arrest him. And Jesus has this interaction that we're about to go into. Um, when, they, when they show up, he asks them, who are you seeking? Who, who do you look for? What is, what is your plan? In uh, John chapter 18, verses 4 through 6, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you speak, seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Now most English uh, Bibles are going to add he, but the statement that he makes is the exact same one that he made all of those other times. I am, I am, I am. And it's the same one that is used back in Exodus in the Greek translation of it. He, he doesn't say I am he or I am that one or I am. He, he doesn't add anything. It's just I am. So when he had said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now there's, there's some debate and discussion about, okay, what's, what's going on here? Was it, was it the shock of his presence or his boldness that made them step back? Or was it, you know, what was going on? Well, I think what happens is something that we, we briefly touched on in an earlier passage. The idea that Jesus said, I'm going to lay my life down for my sheep. And in, in John chapter 10, right after he's been talking about those sheep and that interaction that's going on, he says, no one is going to take my life away. I lay it down freely. And in this statement that he makes, although he is about to be executed, I think that he's making it known that he is still in complete and, control, complete and total control of the situation. He is the one that's going to lay down his own life. And so when he says, I am, he is expressing the power of God, the being that he is, and they are knocked back out of shock, out of awe, out of realization that he is in charge. He is in control of this situation. And he is clearly claiming to be God himself. They then um, stand back up, come forward, and Jesus uh, again asks them, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of the Nazarene. And he said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these, meaning his disciples, go away. He did that to fulfill what was promised, that of those whom you have given me, not I lost no one. And so the disciples are then released, and he allows himself to be arrested, to go with 
the, the guards and ultimately to be executed. Throughout all of these, there were, there were nine I am statements that Jesus made about himself. Throughout all of these, I think that it becomes very, very clear that he is claiming to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, that he is the way to have access to God, that he is everything that is needed spiritually to be able to have spiritual life. He is making a claim to be the only way to God, the only way to avoid eternal separation and isolation. But... It's a reasonable objection that could come up. Someone says, okay, he's making all of these statements about himself. But just because he says these things about himself, that doesn't make him true, right? We would need some corroborating evidence, some other witnesses, some other testimony to verify these things. Well, with bold statements like this, he would really have to back it up to prove well, we've gone through the Gospel of John very, very fast. We've only touched on a few of the highlights. If you take the time, and I would encourage you to do it, you take the time to slow down, go back through each of these. These are accompanied not just with things that he said, but things that he did. Actions that he took to prove who he was. I, I mentioned one of them right at the beginning. When he claims to be the bread of life, well, that comes right after he did a miracle in which he produced hundreds, maybe even thousands of loaves of bread because he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. We looked at that in the Gospel of Mark as well. 5,000 men plus women and children on five loaves and two fishes. He worked a miracle. He did something that proved this is not just a simple, normal teacher who can have some nice things to say that you know, maybe you ought to, to trust him or follow him. No, he's making it clear. Not only is this a statement, but he's backing it up with his actions to prove it. And we're seeing many of those things as we go through the Gospel of Mark, time after time after time, where Jesus teaches something, and then he does a miracle, and he proves who he is. He shows his authority. He casts out the demons. He heals those who are sick. He walks on water. He produces food out of nothing, out of nowhere. He calms the storms and the raging sea. And so at the conclusion of all of that, that's where we got to in Mark chapter 8, what we started with, this declaration of who, who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're a good teacher. Some say that you're a prophet. Some say that you're, you're an interesting guy. And yet, what we've gone through is that he's making statements, making a claim, I'm not just another teacher. I'm not just another prophet. I'm not just a good guy. I'm God himself. With bold statements like that, he would have to back it up. As you go through the Gospel of John and through the other Gospel accounts, you'll find miracle after miracle after miracle in which he not only says who he is, but he takes action to prove it. But that's not all that we come up to. I've got one more passage that I want to go to. This is in Second uh, Peter. In Second Peter chapter 1, we have an account or a statement, a claim, I guess, that Peter makes. <clears throat> 
Second Peter chapter one, verses sixteen through eighteen. I I read as we began in Mark eight twenty seven through twenty nine. Jesus asked, "Who do who do people say that I am?" And then, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter is the one who stood up and said, "You are the Christ." Right. We also saw Martha stand up and say, "You are." the Christ. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You are the promised one. You are everything that God has said would come. Here, we have Peter giving an account. In first, or sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, it says, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, pause there. What is, what is Peter saying? What is he expressing here? We didn't make this stuff up. We're not just sharing myths or ideas or theories or concepts. He's saying, hey, we were eyewitnesses. And we are telling you exactly what we saw. We are eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he gives a specific example. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him... By the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Who remembers when that happened? Do it. Okay. It's one option at the baptism. The transfiguration. That's the one that he's that Peter's referring to. Baptism, yes, there is a there is a voice from heaven. And the Holy Spirit descends. And so we do have a declaration there that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is God. Do what? Like a dove. Yes. Descending like a dove. We studied that one in Mark and, and had some good conversations on that. This one in particular, though, I would want to point your attention to Matthew chapter 17. And it is the account of the transfiguration. And during all of that... Um, it, God makes it very, very clear that God himself does not think of Jesus as just a man or just a good teacher or just a prophet, but as God, as his beloved son. And we, we see that idea of the Trinity come out right there in Matthew 17. It's also recorded in Mark 9. It's also recorded in Luke 9. This declaration that Peter is making here in Second in Peter, is that we were eyewitnesses of God himself saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 18 of Second Peter 1, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So that's, that's what specifies it is the transfiguration and not the baptism. But, so... Peter is claiming to have been an eyewitness to these things. John claims to be an eyewitness to these things. Both of, uh, Matthew claims to be an eyewitness of these things. So both of those Gospels, Matthew and John, claim to be written by people who saw it happen. Peter here is saying, hey, I was there. I saw it. I saw the miracles. I heard the claims. I'm telling you exactly what occurred. We also have the Gospels of Mark and Luke, both of those claim to have been researched. You, you go to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and Luke says, hey, I went, and I talked to everybody, and I studied this out, and I got the account, and I'm writing it down so that you know 
what's going on. You know exactly who this is. So I mentioned the idea of a, of a courtroom and presenting the evidence. And we can't just take one person's claims. I, I get that. I understand that idea that if Jesus says, this is who I am, then people may be skeptical about that. And I, I get that. I understand that. But we're not saying that Jesus is just who he claimed he is. We're also recognizing that there were eyewitnesses over and over and over who saw it and wrote down those claims so that we know Jesus is not just some teacher, not just some prophet, not just... Well, let's go back to Mark chapter 8. That's where we started. That's where we're going to wrap up. Back in Mark chapter 8. As they were walking along, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? In modern day, who do people say that Jesus is? Well, as C.S. Lewis put it, he could be a liar. That he made all this stuff up. Of course, then all of the other people who claimed to be witnesses of it would also have to be a liar. Right? There's a tendency amongst false witnesses to recant their story change their story when under threat of punishment themselves. Especially the idea of execution. And yet every single one of these disciples, save John, died. Martyrs. Holding to that exact same claim. Bearing witness to these things. And they died because of that. John, he didn't die that way, but he was exiled and he was tortured and yet never recanted that story, never recanted the idea that Jesus is exactly who I bear witness and bear testimony that he was. Peter is the one who pops up and gives the answer, this is who you are. So we started off with this question, who is Jesus? We have a reliable witness, a reliable account We have the statements of Jesus himself. The question then comes down to how I always end sermons. So what? What are we going to do with this? What difference does this make? Now, I, I readily acknowledge that most here, many here, already trust Jesus as their Savior. They already are following him. I think that it's wonderful to review, to be reminded, to know This is who Jesus claims to be. This is who witnesses in that time who could have very easily been counteracted and who ultimately were persecuted for the statements that they made. This is who they said that he was. It's a good reminder and it's good to be ready to give an answer. Ready to to answer that question if you're out and about interacting with someone. Who is Jesus? Are you ready to answer that? To tell somebody, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is God himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecy, of all the promises. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. I know that, like I said, most here are probably already saved. But if there's one 
who's not, who's never accepted that, who's never trusted that, I want to ask you, why? The evidence is there. Go back, check it out, study through it, read it, understand it. If you have questions, let me know. I'd love to sit down and talk about it. So what? As we're at Christmas time, and we're celebrating the birth of Christ, and the the baby in the manger, I want to encourage you to remember, that's not all. Amid all of the gifts, and all of the excitement, and all of the stuff going on with Christmas, I want to encourage you to decide, who is Jesus to you? Is he just some guy? Or is he your Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this very brief review of so many of the statements that Jesus made. Lord, it's impossible to conclude that Jesus didn't claim to be God, didn't claim to be the Messiah. So Lord, as we look through this, we have to evaluate Are we going to trust it or not? And that's a decision that you give to each of us. It's truly amazing that you allow us that free choice. Do we want to accept or not? And I do pray that each one here would accept you as their Savior, would live a life to glorify you. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for the opportunity that we have to know him and to know you. In his name I pray, amen.